You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and thanks for joining me, Sharon Noonan, on tonight's Best Possible Taste. I have an array of guests to chat to and I hope you're going to enjoy listening. Sinead Neyland from the Organic College is back for her usual slot at the start of the month. Entrepreneur Michelle Moen joins me on the phone to talk about dieting, juicing and her autobiography, My Fight to the Top. I have a report from the Belfast Food Tour and I'll be talking to food stylist Jette Verdi about her most recent venture, The Creatives. To get in touch, you can email me here, s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org, short for Queen of Organisation. But let's get moving and welcome Sinead Neeland from County Limerick's Organic College to a regular slot on the second Tuesday of the month. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Sinead, you're very welcome this evening. Thanks, Sharon. And we're going to talk about romantic foods. We missed you at the start of the month, so we're, we might be a bit late for this, but sure, we'll chat about it anyway. I was doing a bit of research online and it basically threw up a number of foods that are allegedly aphrodisiacs. We're not going to talk about that side of them, <laughs> but we'll talk about whether or not they can be grown in this country. So the first one is artichokes. Yeah, and that's, I presume it's the globe artichoke, which is the one, the big plant that has a flower like um, like a giant thistle, as opposed to the Jerusalem artichoke, which is a tuber in the ground. And I don't think that would have a romantic connotation because it's usually called fartichoke. Oh, really? Nice. <laughs> it's quite hard to digest, apparently. Okay. So, But the globe artichoke is very easy to grow. It's a great plant. Um, a lot of people would grow it from the ornamental point of view because it's got beautiful beautiful silver leaves. It gets very large and forms a very large clump. And then you've got the really tall, striking flower. So it's quite good from an ornamental point of view. But the part that you eat, the globe artichoke, you eat it just before the flower opens. It's like you, you eat it in the bud stage. It's a big, fat bud with all those thick kind of... I suppose hard scales and what the part that's actually eaten is sort of in the centre of what's called the artichoke heart or sometimes people prepare it and with a sauce and then you just peel off each little scale and eat the little fleshy piece at the base which is a lot of hard work. And how easy or difficult are they to grow? Very easy. They just, they form a big clump. They're really hardy. Um, They're in the garden in the college at the moment in full leaf, silver leaf. They never died off over the winter. Um, They get no care whatsoever and they come up every year. The clump gets larger and larger, more flowers. You can divide it very, very easily. Just split the plant and you've got a new plant. Very, very easy to propagate it and um, very easy to grow. I suppose the difficult part is the timing of the harvest because when you're looking at the the globe or the bud you kind of say, oh, I wonder, will I get a little bit bigger or will I wait? And once it opens to the flower stage, it's got this choke in it, which is really stringy. And at that point, you can't really eat it. So it's the timing is kind of, you have to be very precise of it, that you cut it before it starts to open into the flower. Otherwise, it's too late. Okay, that's artichokes now. And it says here, it's all about the intimacy of eating it with one another, pulling off the leaves to reach the centre. Yeah, that's that thing where the, there's a lot of hard work in it. So, and, okay. and I think a lot of it is you make, it's kind of, is it like a Bernays sauce or something that goes with it? Um, and it's the, you know, the sauce and this, like by the time you've finished, I don't know how, if you'd have much energy left for romance. But And is that the artichoke that you would see in the jars of oil? In the yes, that's the, the 
heart, the, what they call the artichoke heart. Okay. And that's the part in the centre. Now, and like you can, you can just cook it whole and then take off the, the scales and eat the, the bits at the base of the leaf and then you get into the heart or you can prepare it by taking out the heart again, which is quite a bit of work. Okay. Um, but that's the part that you eat, yeah. Another one that was on the list was chilli peppers. Chilies, yeah. Again, actually quite easy to grow here. People think they're kind of difficult, but they're basically the same as tomatoes and you'd grow them in the tunnel with your tomatoes. Um, not, they're in the same family, so they've exactly the same care, the same you know nutrient requirements, the same pest and disease problems. So they're actually quite easy to grow. And the chilies, um, I suppose, again, it's getting them on early enough so that they have a good long growing season, but they'll grow away and provide you with chilies right up into November, if not longer, in a tunnel. And they're a good one, I think, for a window box or a small... They would grow their, yeah, well, not so much a window box because they get quite large. Like, think about them like tomatoes. They don't need to be strung up. They don't need that kind of support, but they're going to get into a bush. They're going to be quite large. Um, So, but they would grow in a container. If you had a good sunny spot, you know, like a patio or, you know, outside your house, a good sunny kind of sun trap, they would grow quite well in a container. Yeah. Okay. And it's saying here, this invigorating spice has an exotic reputation and a bright red colour, which could be why it's considered an aphrodisiac and a symbol of love. Oh, right. And there's quite a lot of varieties because, you know, there's on the different, you know, if you went to buy chilies, there's like very hot ones or there's kind of mild ones. And like you can get seeds for a whole range of them, um, like habanero, cayenne, um, up to some of those, you know, those scotch bonnets that blow your head off, all of those. Yeah, but they're, they're actually quite easy to grow. You know, you think of them as being very hot countries, tropical, but they actually grow quite well here. In a, in a tunnel probably better than outside in the open but um, just treat them like tomatoes exactly the same way you grow sh- your tomatoes and you'll have a good return and that's just seeds you're just putting the seeds in yep. and then they do their own thing they do and they're quite prolific they produce quite a lot of fruit um, so they're quite easy from okay. that point of view that's another easy one that we can do and then surprisingly rocket Rocket is down on the list here because it's spicy. I suppose you know we eat it as a salad, but it it is quite. It's one of the spicy salads. One of the you know if you're if you're looking at a salad mix or you know mixed leaf, um, you have the spicy along with the lettuce. And rocket would be one of those. Um, very easy to grow. Grow it from seed. You know, in again you could have it in a window box. It's one of those cut and come salads. So you keep picking it. It keeps growing. Uh, the only thing with rocket is it has a tendency to boil as in run to seed so you might need to sow it a few times um, but very very easy What does that mean run to seed? Um, some plants kind of if they're stressed they'll they'll bolt which and basically they go to flower and seed because a plant's answer to stress is to produce seed because that's the only way of you know continuing if they think they're going they're under stress and they're not going to survive produce seed and then there's a chance that the plant will continue um, but it's it's kind of premature seeding it's not seeding at the normal time in the life cycle so that's what we call bolting run to seed um, and rocket has a tendency to do that um, if you're picking it constantly picking it and the cut and come it keeps going but sometimes if you don't it can suddenly go to flower and seed and then it's gone the leaves get bitter um, and they're not that good for eating so it's kind of one of the it's one of the salads that we would succession sow so you would sow it several times through the year so that you constantly have a supply coming on um, and maybe through the summer you'd sow it two or three times that would keep you going if conditions got very hot and dry 
dry, the chances are it would bolt. Okay, that's good to know. And hot and dry conditions are probably quite advantageous for growing strawberries, which is the next one on the list. Well, they like the sun, but they're not dry conditions. They would like good organically enriched soil and plenty of moisture, actually. So, But again, they're quite easy to grow. And strawberries are something that would grow uh, in window boxes, in hanging baskets, because the fruit will hang down and then you have less chance of snail and slug damage. Um, quite easy to grow strawberries but they do need um, a, a bit of feeding you know so good if if you were growing them outside you'd be digging in you might put dig in manure or your compost from your compost heap and if you were growing them in a container I would be going for good enriched potting compost your compost from your compost heap all that sort of stuff to keep them going and then they will produce well for you over the summer again you keep picking them they keep producing you'll get um, well if you had some in your polytunnel you'd get them from probably May until July but uh, you can get different varieties you know early mid-season late so again you can extend your season if you had two or three varieties but they grow away there's very little goes wrong with them protecting them from slugs protecting them from birds that would be the main thing bit of netting Um, and they'll keep going and then of course at the end of the season they'll start to propagate themselves because they throw out these runners um, or stolons um, that will root where they touch the soil so if you pin the runner into a pot you'll have a new plant ready to go which will if that's in September that will be producing fruit for you the following summer they're very fast very easy and do you need to put it away for the winter no they don't do anything they'll stay they're quite hardy they won't die back they'll have big leaves and you leave them and then in the spring you'll see the new leaves come and then you can remove the older leaves that are kind of dying off but they're very hardy plants again I'm surprised to hear that now because I always felt with strawberries that you'd grow your your tub there and sure you'd only get a bowl out of it and that would be it and an awful lot of work for very little yeah. return but you're saying that that's not actually the case No and I mean like if you've only one plant you won't get a big return you know and particularly in the first year but you know four or five plants should give you a nice a nice return of strawberries through the season Okay well let's talk then about a couple of things that are meant to be aphrodisiacs but you couldn't really grow them here and one of them is avocados Yes avocado I mean it's a great fruit I suppose you'd call it even though we'd tend to use it more in salads and um, that kind of way. Um, you won't grow it here. It, it, all the avocados you buy are imported. You won't get um, Irish avocados. And I know it was always, the, I suppose, the tradition with people that you took the stone out of the avocado and you stuck cocktail sticks into it and you had it in a jar of water until it rooted and then you potted it up. It will make a good plant, a great house plant. And I, I knew one that was over the years and potted on and potted on became a giant plant but it was only ever foliage green leaves no flowers and definitely no fruit even though it was kept in the house so it's not something that we can produce here at all not a very attractive plant from what I remember quite a boring yeah just green leaf really (laughs) yeah I remember my grandmother doing that she would have put it in a milk bottle or set it on top of a milk bottle and had the water coming the water yes and then that encourages to root yeah everybody used to do it and it was this great thing oh and then it roots and then you pot it up but it, it's not going you're not going to grow avocados so you know yeah what's the point yeah. <laughs> what is the point yeah and pomegranates yeah again a fruit not not really grown in Ireland again hot hot climates so and very easily um, much easier to get now than 
they're not used to be they're readily available in the they are now because I suppose it, it came juice. in as a, as a health kind of food because pomegranate pomegranate juice it, it was kind of a sort of a one of the superfoods really I suppose there a few years ago became quite popular so now quite easy to get and used a lot in salads you see people making a, you know a kind of a dressing in that with the pomegranates and adding it to salads and again I suppose getting getting I suppose as a way of getting the food in Okay. the goodness of the food well I hope we have enlightened the listeners now if they're looking for any aphrodisiac type fruits to grow in the next 12 months that um, the chilli peppers the strawberries the artichokes and the rocket are four good ones to go for but forget the avocados and the pomegranates yep, leave those them. to the, the supermarket, supermarket exactly. and the, the fruit shops Sinead thanks for coming in this evening and we'll talk to you again soon ok no problem Sharon thank you Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Thanks to Sinead from the Organic College for coming into the studio. And if you have a planting or growing question for her for her April slot, you can email it to me, s.noonan at live.ie, and I'll put it to her on her next visit. Still to come tonight, I have a report from the Belfast Food Tour, and I'll be talking to food stylist Jette Verdi about her most recent venture, The Creatives. Next, though, I'm delighted to go over to the phone to chat to Michelle Moan, who is one of the UK's leading entrepreneurs. She's probably best known as the inventor of the Ultimo Bra, but her portfolio of achievements is extensive and it is certainly very impressive. Her autobiography, which came out last week, documents not only the positive aspects of her life, but also the struggles that she has endured, and many of these manifested themselves in her eating habits. Let's have a chat to her now. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. You're very good to talk to me this evening. Thanks so much for taking the call. Nice to talk to you too. I'm very interested in talking to you because I do a food drink show and therefore I'm all about people and their diet and exercise and all of that. And I, I feel that you have a very interesting story to tell whenever it comes to your eating habits. Yes, well, my history hasn't been the best in fact it was an absolute nightmare um, I used to eat about four McDonald's a day um, several cans 15 cans maybe of fizzy juice um, I used to be so unhealthy um, eating you know ready meals um, as well and I ballooned and I put on about eight and a half stone and then I was on the, the beach um, in uh, Miami with Rachel Hunter who was one of our Ultimo models one day and I was up to size 22 and she said what's wrong with you? I said well I'm just so down and depressed about my weight and I'm, hide- I'm hiding cakes in the cupboards and I just can't get out of this habit and she said well you're amazing at business um, you've created Ultimo and all the rest of it, why don't you just treat your body like a business and it was almost like a light switch been turned on and from that moment on I just started working at it um, and then a, a professor Professor Jan de Fries, um, who's a top herbalist um, I went to see him he was developing a product called Trim Secrets um, and I then took Trim Secrets totally herbal, suppressed my appetite and you know, in total now I've lost eight and a half stone and I feel amazing would you say that at the time you were an emotional eater? Definitely. I was I was just so stressed, um, you know, with everything that was going on in my relationship 
um, everything that was going on in my business relationship. And, you know, some people um, deal with it in different ways where they don't eat or, you know, or the smoke or the drink. My way of turning for that comfort was food. Um, and it actually affected my children as well because, you know, whatever mum has got in the cupboard, um, the kids just grabbed as well. But now, I mean, I never carry out food. And my kids are the same. And, you know, everyone's really, really healthy. And I do eat exceptionally clean. And I run about seven kilometres a day, every day. So I've kind of turned my life right around from being everything so now I really do care about myself and I suppose it was that lack of care with a car you know if you don't care for a car it's going to get rusty and it's going to look rubbish but if you really care and you polish it um, it's going to look amazing and what you put into your body you know is, is what comes out as well so in terms of your skin and your eyes and everything else so I, I, for the first time in my life I do feel I mean but in fairness to you you have a very very busy lifestyle and whenever you weren't eating well you you have that lifestyle as well you were travelling a lot you had three kids at home so it can be very difficult to juggle all of that and I would imagine even now with all the travelling that you do and flying in particular it must be very very difficult to manage and and maintain a healthy balanced eating eating habits Yeah it's very hard and you know I do too about average 270 flights a year which is you know the average family maybe go to the airport once or twice a year if they go at all Um and I've really had to change how I fly. So I, I go on the plane, I take all my makeup off, turn my hair back, put my pyjamas on, <coughs> take a very light sleeping tablet if it's in a long haul flight, drink lots of water, and I don't eat or drink airline food because I actually think it makes you feel so horrible when you fly and you, you get more jet lagged with it. Um, so I tend to. I tend to just not eat the food and um, I take you know, if I'm going to eat something I don't even eat the fruit that they have cut up because I just don't know what, you know, what is in it and everything else, if there's any sugar or anything I just take, you know, a banana and a tangerine or something um, but it is difficult and right now I'm sitting in a restaurant and I actually tell the restaurant how I want my food cooked Um so tonight I said, you know, olive oil, no salt, no pepper, um, don't use any butter. And I actually tell them how to cook my food. And I think when people realise that you can actually tell a restaurant how you want your food cooked, because you're in charge. Um, it might be in the menu, but, you know, the chef's cooking it. So tell them how you want it. And I've learnt that. And I can go out and, you know, I'm having a business dinner now. And I can do that. Um, and I can go for business lunches. And I just know how to do it. I, what I tend to do is I tend to juice for one week. Um, so only drink juice, which some people think, oh my goodness, that's extreme. But really, the, the platefuls of vegetables that are going into these juices is 
is incredible what it's got. And then I'll eat healthy for a week. So on off, on off. But does that take away from your enjoyment of going out and having dinner? Of course. I would love to go out for dinner and eat a big bowl of chips with salt and vinegar. I'd love to eat um, a big chocolate fondant. But, you know, my mouth loves it. And then my backside and my conscience hates it literally one second after I've eaten it. Okay. So I've, I've learned that it's just not worth it. Um, I still have fun, but I think eating clean is just such a good way and I've got a lot more energy in business now than I've ever had. Um, I'm now almost two months where I've not been drinking as well. Um, just through all my challenges in business and personal life, I was drinking over a bottle a night. That's a lot of wine. <laughs> and, um, a, and a lot of calories because I did read that, have, have you lost Have you lost 20 pounds since you gave up the booze? Since, um, yeah, I stopped in Dubai um, at when the, the New Year bells came in, um, midnight on the 1st of January in Dubai, I was standing with my youngest with a glass of pink champagne and then when the clock struck, I just handed it over and that was it. I finished it. Um, so I'm actually quite a determined person and I think once you get into the zone, the zone is a very powerful place and the zone is a nice place to be. It's hard to get into the zone and you keep saying, oh, I'm going to try tomorrow, I'll try on Monday. But when you get into the zone and the weeks pass, you actually start to gain more confidence and you start to say, you know what, I'm now two weeks in and I don't really want to go back. I don't want to change the way I'm eating. I don't want to have bread. I've not had bread in probably six months. I love bread. I would eat two whole loaves of bread with lots of butter. But, you know, my backside and my boobs would just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, And that doesn't make me feel good. Well, it doesn't make me perform in business either. Well, one thing that you must enjoy is cooking because you were on Celebrity MasterChef in 2011. Do you get much time oh to cook? Oh my goodness, yeah. I did Celebrity MasterChef 2011. I thought it was only like a couple of years ago. And did you enjoy that experience? I absolutely loved doing MasterChef, but it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And that's when I started to really change my eating habits. That's when I started to say, right, it doesn't take that long to cook a piece of fish. And, you know, microwave foods are so bad for you and everything else, so dinner. Um, and it really helped me understand food and helped me understand everything. So it was a stressful time, but a very enjoyable time as well. Well, I'm sure that, along with everything else we've talked about, is documented in your autobiography. Tell me about it. I've been asked for the last six years to do an autobiography, but I wasn't ready to do it. And you're also very young to do it, in fairness. Yeah, I started the business when I was, you know, very young. Um, And I just felt that this stage of my life with me recently selling 80% of Ultimo and I'm speaking all around the world and some of the biggest events with Al Pacino and Sylvester Stallone and I had a lot more maybe free time and time to write my my stories and time to write 
what went on in my personal relationship and business relationship. I've never ever spoken about my personal relationship. And I think people are quite shocked um, what happened in, in my personal relationship. But, you know, I don't hold any grudges and I'm not a, a bitter person anymore. I was, but not anymore. And I think I never regret anything in life. Every day is a school day and every day you learn. And it was now the time to do my book. And, um, yeah, I, I can't turn back now. And I thought, if you're going to do an autobiography, you have to tell the truth. You have to tell the truth. You can't just tell the bits that you want to tell and make it all a bed of roses because, really, it wasn't. Um, so hopefully the book will inspire people if they're going through a hard time in their personal relationship, their business relationship, and they will see that the only, only way that you can win in life, both in business, personal targets, um, and your relationship, is just never, ever to give up. Um, it's so easy to give up. And yes, it was hard, and yes, there were times where I didn't want to wake up in the morning. But if you fight and you never give up, and you keep going, the answers will come and you, you'll win in the end. Um, and hopefully it will inspire people. That's my aim for doing it. And it's called, Michelle Moan, My Fight to the Top. Why did you go for that title? Uh, yeah, it's called My Fight to the Top because I'm telling you, it has been a hell of a fight to the top. It's not been easy. You know, I've put my house up security to the bank two times. I had a distributor who ran off with £1.8 million of my cash. You know, it's, it's, it's all my life been a fight, a fight. You know, I grew up meeting the Glasgow, started a business when I was 10. My brother died. Like, so at 15, dad can find a wheelchair at 68. So everything's really been a fight. I mean, I know that there's people out there that are a lot worse off than what I've had to get through, but I just felt that to say to people, look, if you want to get to the top, you have to actually want to get there. And, you know, if, you, if you're willing to get there, it, it is going to be a fight. And there are going to be sacrifices. Um, but if you stick in there, then it's worth it in the end. Well, Michelle, I'm looking forward to reading it. And um, I better let you get back to your dinner there. Yeah, thank you. And I want to come to, I think I'm doing quite a few book signings in uh, Ireland as well. So can't wait to meet everyone. Fantastic. Well, I hopefully maybe will get to one myself so we can say hello in person. But in the meantime, thanks so much for talking to me this evening. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to tonight's programme. If you've just joined us, we heard earlier from the Organic College's Sinead Neeland, who was enlightening us about what romantic items we can grow ourselves. And just before the break, I was talking to entrepreneur Michelle Moan, head of the Ultimo Empire, about the challenges she faces, like many of us, with her diet. And of course, her autobiography, My Fight to the Top, which is available to buy at all good bookshops now. The quality of the line wasn't great there, so apologies for that. But never fear if you've missed some of the show, as it will be up on the Best Possible Taste podcast later in the week, along with all of the previous shows. A very therapeutic listen.
You'll find the podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash food and drink show. Time now to take you out and about. And as you know, I had a trip north in February. And when I was there, I took a spin down memory lane to Port Stewart Strand. You heard the interview last week with Donald Doherty at Harry Shack. Well, another part of the trip was a day in Belfast. When I go back home, I always spend time there. But it's usually visiting family or friends at their homes. So I rarely get the opportunity to actually enjoy the city of Belfast for itself. Well, not so on this occasion because I had a cunning plan and instead of visiting my pal Arlene at her house, I said, let's do the Belfast food tour together. It's relatively new to the city and it's run by Caroline Wilson, solicitor by day, tour guide by weekend. And I met lots of interesting folk along the way, including Jurd from County Cork, living in Australia, cookery writer James McIntosh, who is huge in China, and of course, Caroline herself. So have a listen. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Caroline, tell me how somebody goes from being a solicitor Monday to Friday to doing a food tour on a Saturday in Belfast. I am an absolute foodie and everywhere I go on holiday I like to do a food tour because I think it's the best way to get to see a city and the best way to get to know a city is to taste it. So I decided... Well, not saying no one better, but I just decided to start a local food tour in the city centre. So it showcases all the best of Northern Ireland produce, um, but within a walking tour around the city. What's the feedback being back from people? Is it Northern Irish people that do it? Is it tourists that do it? A mix of people? It's mainly people from Northern Ireland, but we're now getting a mix. And it's the people who are from Northern Ireland and even people from Belfast City from you know from here themselves they can't believe what they're finding um on the tour that they didn't realize was in their own backyard and that's probably one of the best things that i can bring to any tour that i can do whenever you approached some of the producers that you stopped with along the way and said you wanted to do a food tour what was their reaction i don't think they understood what i was meaning at the very beginning but after the first few goes they got into it and some of them like to do big hellos to everyone and then they start to talk a bit more uh, the bigger the group probably the little bit more silent they become but when they start to open up when people start asking them but the other thing is is that when people go back to them again and they say oh we were on the tour that's when the talking never stops um, they'll tell you everything about their produce and they just love showcasing it themselves it just took me to maybe join it up a little bit there's quite a few stops along the way and it takes about four hours to do it yeah it's meant to be three and a half but we just go at a leisurely pace and we enjoy the afternoon and the morning and who wants to rush around on a saturday And what do people get to enjoy along the way? We have everything from local meats, um, local fish. We have fresh oysters. We have um, Abernethy butter, brighter gold oils. We have traditional breads and then maybe a bit more modern day breads. We do just everything that we can get that's locally uh, or in the city centre that's just local. All great produce. Now, the last stop is very interesting. Tell me about that. Kopi is um, an Italian in sort of themed restaurant, which I hate the word, maybe more inspired, um, that is Italian food, but it's all based around local produce. Uh, they are one of these places that don't maybe shout it on their menu, but you can go in here and you'll have um, local goat from the Divis Mountains. You've got Portavoki seafood, um, Cherry Valley duck, and everything that they pass as they make only up the road. It's somewhere that... I just think they've got such great produce that 
they're doing great things with it and that's when you really realise what local food is that it's not Irish stew maybe or the Ulster fry it's exactly what's going down on your plate it's the it's the triumph that is the food that is grown uh, or reared in this country. Well, thanks so much for having me today. I've seen parts of Belfast and tasted produce from Northern Ireland I didn't even know existed. So it has been a real eye-opener for, for me. Joining. And I'd really urge listeners to go on to BelfastFoodTours.com and book in with you the next time they're up in the city. Thanks so much. Thank you. Where are you from in Cork originally? Uh, North Cork, the Galtee Mountains. Okay. And you're home on holiday at the moment? Yes, for three weeks. And what brought you up to Belfast? Oh, just friends and uh, friends and food, actually. Friends and food. You're doing the food tour today in Belfast. What did you think of it? Oh, so far so good. It's been brilliant, actually. It's been, um, as food tour, tours go, we, we've done quite a lot, myself and my wife, as we've toured around a lot of Europe and stuff. And um, it's very informed, and which is what you want on a food tour. And at the same time, you want... We want quality dishes and food and bits and pieces, and this has been that. It's, uh, it's been very good, very nice, very enjoyable, actually. What has been the highlight in terms of what you've tried today? Um, actually, I think the sausages actually in the market earlier on were uh, some of the best I had, actually. And I, I'm a carnivore, as most men are, very, very partial bit of sausage. Not in a non-gay way, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but uh, it was the sausages. There was a, there was a sausage with, um, with marmalade in it, which was really, really lovely. And there was another one with haggis. I think it was the haggis one I really, really liked. Because I'm a very, very big fan of uh, haggis and black pudding. So I would, that, to me, was, was absolutely gorgeous. You said you've done a number of food tours all over the world. How does this one compare to some other places that you've been? It, it's certainly up there. Um, I would have liked if it was a little bit smaller, uh, people-wise. Um, I, I, I prefer a little bit more intimacy, because you can get to talk to the person that's doing the food tour. Uh, but in saying that, I must admit, the, the lady, Caroline, she's very, very passionate, and that's what you want. If you're on a food tour, you want someone that's passionate about their food, and passionate about where they're bringing you. And she certainly has that, you know. And other, other than the crowd, it, it was very, very enjoyable, and literally, I would recommend it again, you know. You live in Western Australia now. What food do you really miss whenever you're living out there? What Irish food do you miss? Bacon and cabbage. And I know it sounds, honest to God, bacon, cabbage, turnip and white sauce. Uh, and it's, I, I grew up with it, you know, and literally I hated it as a child. Came to love it as an adult. And uh, when we're out there now, you just can't get good bacon. You really, really can't. Um, I mean, Western Australia, it's, it's a little strange. It, it's... It's called WA and the Aussies refer to it as wait a while because it takes so long to get bits and pieces over there. So even in Australia, even in WA, they're just, they're a little bit lazy when it comes to food. They're very kind of, if, it, if the plate is full, you're full, you know, that kind of way. They don't realise, they don't get what good food is. Um, we, 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 as I said, myself and my wife are very, very fond of food. And we spent, we got down to Perth quite a lot. And we were in Jamie Oliver's restaurant recently in Perth. And again, it was just, it was all about filling the plate rather than the quality of the plate. Whereas I've been at Jamie Oliver's restaurant in London. And uh, it was way, way different. You know, it's all about satisfying the masses rather than, you know, the quality of the food. You said to me earlier that goat is getting very popular in Australia. Yes, it is. Um, they have a lot of wild goats in Australia. It's actually, um, they shoot them. Um, and you can actually just go out and you can follow around the range and you can shoot goat. It's like uh, shooting kangaroos. They're like, an, I won't call them an infestation, but they're, um, they're causing a lot of difficulties in the land and bits and pieces. So there's a lot of wild goat. So recently a lot of the farmers have started rearing goats. And, and then selling them off and I'm, I'm a very big fan of goat actually I love, I love goat curry 
and my wife, uh, we love goat's cheese. And my wife makes an absolutely stunning halloumi. Uh, just done it in the oven with a little, little, little bit of honey, a little bit of herbs and spices. Absolutely, absolutely gorgeous, you know. So, Well, thanks so much for talking to me today. Safe trip home. James McIntosh, Food Ambassador, Northern Ireland and the UK. Some people would say, you don't need to do a food tour of Belfast. Oh, you do. Growing up in County Armagh, and I grew up in the middle of Orchard County, which fantastically now has PGI status, and our Bramleys are like Milton Mowbray or Parmaham, so we can hit the world with County Armagh. But I look at Northern Ireland in a different way. You know, spuds were the main thing. But I believe after the Troubles, we have a new confidence, and that's food. We're all the same at the table, black, white, Muslim, um, Christian, gay, straight, Protestant, Catholic. And the table doesn't differentiate, but this food produce we have that I call our new confidence, it services everybody and gives us this strength in Northern Ireland that we never had before. What has the highlight of the food tour today been Food tour? Where do you start? Well, you start off in St George's Market with oysters, and then you go round and you get the breads that I grew up with. But you also get breads with world flavours. And what was most appreciated by me was that these world flavours are grown in Northern Ireland now. And then you go around restaurants and you do have a tipple or two. But it's the small microbreweries. It's the, it's the short cross gin. It's the Hilden drinks. It's, it's the new Northern Ireland. And it's phenomenal to see. And it's ready to hit the world. And Belfast, surely now, is the culinary capital of the world. You're based in London, I'm based down in Limerick, and I often come across people, like I'm sure you do, that are still a bit reluctant to make the journey to Belfast. What do you say to them? I live in London for a few reasons. I spend most of my time in China. I'm home every month. I am from here, but I never forgot here because Northern Ireland is my home. The value system we have makes us a unique people, and it's just like down in Limerick in, in the Republic of Ireland. There's a, there's a community that you don't get in England. But I'm on planes everywhere, so it's easier to be in London. But Belfast, you see, if you take Northern Ireland as a brand rather than a place, I do believe we produce the best food in the world because it's it's what the French call a terroir. It's got the right climate conditions. It's got this microclimate. It's got a purity. It's genetically modified free with the best farm traceability schemes in the world. And our food is pure. And to see this new, as I said, confidence coming back in, Belfast is the world's food destination. And it's ready for the world. And the world is just starting to see it. And when you get things like British Airways, um, High Life magazine, saying that we're one of the main food destinations in the world that's up and coming, I actually believe we're up and come. And we're now ready to bring everybody in. You know, we're up there with Tokyo and Sydney with British Airways. This is Belfast. This is a small city. When they compare us to Tokyo and to Sydney, I mean, they're world cities. But this small place of 300,000 people has captured the world. You mentioned China there, and you've actually spent a lot of time in China yourself. Tell the listeners about your cookbook and how you ended up in China. I wrote a cookbook in 2008, and it was uh, a small book about white sauce and pastry. It was the basis of cooking. And uh, I entered into the World Cookbook Awards, and it won Best Cookbook Series in the World in 2008. That's run by the prestigious Quantro family. And the Gourmand World Cookbook Awards are huge. They're the, often described as the Pulitzer Cookbook Publishing. And um, I had a phone call one day saying, 
congratulations, would you like to present a TV series in China, Food TV? I did, 40 Days in China. It was, as we say in Northern Ireland, it's not as well in a hound girl of what you get in Boones and Portadown. You better translate that for my listeners. It's not within a, well, it's very different to what you get in the local Chinese. But I loved it. I saw fantastic things. I was cooking top of the Great Wall of China. I was cooking with the Terracotta Warriors in the city of Xi'an. I was cooking uh, in the middle of the Gobi Desert. And I was able to take our food and introduce it to the Chinese. And it went phenomenally huge. And you can now see me on International Air China flights. Did winning that competition open lots of doors for you and really change the shape of your career? Completely. Um, I'm the global ambassador for Iger Cookers and I do different things but my a lot of my life is based in China now and it's not too bad, it's only an overnight flight there and an overnight flight back and I, I was the first Westerner to get in China Food TV and what this did was open a huge opportunity in 2011 I was fortunate enough to be honoured with the Chinese Media Award for um, Best TV Series in China and this was the first time a Westerner ever won it. And that opened opportunities for the UK and Ireland to get our produce in there. And it's, it's been a fantastic journey. Yes, my career has exploded as a result of it. But there's nowhere for food, like back home in Belfast where I grew up. And what would a typical day entail for you? When I'm in London, I work from home. I get out of my bed, I sit at my desk. I write and I cook and I plan to get ready for the next thing. In China... Well, it's not like here. And you don't know what you're doing until you're doing it because of their honour policy, a thing called guanxi. And to basically explain it is if you make me a cup of tea, I would owe you a debt. And it's not like that here because of our hospitality. But the more guanxi you have, the more available, you know, the more rights you have. And so China, you don't know what you're doing until you're doing it because somebody with more guanxi could come in and you'll be doing something else. So you have to be ready to just go with it, enjoy it. It's not wrong, it's just different, and I can tell you, it's very different. Now tell me what projects you're working on at the moment. At the moment? Well, I'm working to bring the World Cookbook Awards to Belfast. That's 3,000 of the world's biggest food writers and TV celebrities across the world to Northern Ireland to see our food. I'm working, I fly out on the 24th of March to China to launch Aga Cookers in China. This is key because this is the first time an oven, never mind an Aga, has been available in China. They've used woks for 3,000 years BC. I'm also, I run the kitchens for the Quality Food Awards. We're launching the Quality Cafe Awards the day after I get back from China. And yeah, I do a lot of things. I try my best to make our food famous and then bring it abroad. And I've also got my own food brand in Hong Kong. A food brand in Hong Kong. Tell it's, me about that. It's called Honest Food. Food you've got faith in is the tagline. And what I believe is because of the purity that there is in Ireland, North and South, we, ha- we are genetically modified free. We've got these fantastically beautiful food products and there's a lot more flavour than you would ever get in England. And it, it's pure food. It's honest food. You see, food... This food is what my mother fed me, and yours probably fed you too. And they did it through love to give you the best. And when I thought about it, it is honest food, because it's food as it should be. And we're very lucky on this island as a whole to have this pure food that nowhere else in the world really has anymore. And it's something to be proud of. And that's why I've got faith in it, as my tagline says.
and your mother was a home economics teacher and your father was a farmer so undoubtedly they instilled a great passion for food in you well as I say I was taught food from the plow to the plate and I say plow to plate lots of people say field to fork but what goes into the ground shows on the plate I believe so if you've got this purity that goes into the ground you've got a pure plate and that's full of nutrients and goodness but it's not just that Food is a thing that differentiates and gives you, as I said earlier, there's no prejudice at the table. It welcomes all. And with our hospitality, no stranger goes hungry at our tables. Well, on that note, James, it's been lovely to talk to you. Great to see you, you in Belfast, and we'll meet again soon. Thank you. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break I shared my day on the Belfast food tour with you. I hope you liked that. I'd highly recommend it and thanks again to Caroline for having me, Arlene for coming along with me and to Jurd and James for chatting to me. A reminder of the web address, BelfastFoodTour.com. And I'm actually toying with the idea. I'd love to do a tour to Belfast for listeners. So if it happens, I'll keep you posted. Or if, if you're interested in it, you can email me, s.noonan at live.ie. Now, we're returning to the phone in order to talk to Jet Verdi. Jet wears many hats and appeared in one of them back in the early days of the show when she was a guest and talked about her life as a private chef. Tonight, she returns wearing her food stylist hat to tell me about her latest venture, The Creatives. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Jed, welcome to the show tonight. Thank you so much for having me on, Sharon. Tell me, what is The Creatives, or what are The Creatives? We are basically a group of uh, people in the creative industries who have come together to host long table suppers and design and food workshops with an ethos of basically bringing the community together to make it a stronger, better place using food and design. So give me an example of one that you've held in the past. So in December last year, we held a long table supper for Irish men's sheds. And basically what happens is we rent out a really cool space. We put on maybe a four course up to eight course dinner. There's welcome cocktails, live music, and all the profits go back to a local project. In that case, it was Irish men's sheds. And the next one that's happening in March is for the marriage equality campaign. Now, whenever you say you rent out a cool space, what sort of a space would that be? So, um, an abandoned building, an old fire station, maybe an old schoolhouse or church. Um, it just kind of depends on the event and how many people we're, we're looking to host. And what way does that work then in terms of your equipment and being able to cook the food and everything being according to HSE regulations and all that red tape that there is there. Yeah, we're just really careful. Um, we're all HACCP trained, so we know the deal. Um, you know, we're, we're all in the food industry. Um, the chefs are trained chefs. Um, and it's just a case of, you know, basic hygiene and cleanliness standards. And, uh, yeah, just being careful. And do you bring your equipment with you then? Yeah, we would. Um some places have kitchens that we can use that are has up, you know, with all the certificates. Other places, we have to bring in everything from catering companies. Um, 
but we find a way and it's and it works and the menus then describe a, a menu that you would put on for an evening Oh, so we do very seasonal food and we try to keep it all local within the Dublin area. And it would range from what the fishmonger could get us that's locally caught to the season, which type of meats are available. Um, we definitely try to keep it very mixed. So vegetarian courses mixed with fish and then meat. Um, we try and cater for all kind of allergies and, you know, food requirements. Um, and we mix it up. We try and push a couple boundaries. Because I would imagine when you're doing something like this, the last thing you need is somebody with a serious food allergy or intolerance or they just don't like something in, in the middle of it because you're not set up and equipped to be making a dish to order. Yeah, not at all. The menu is um, kind of, you buy a ticket and what you get is what you get. There's no... You know, at the time of purchase, you you would let us know if you're allergic, if you're a celiac, or if you have a nut allergy, um, which is a little trickier, honestly. Um, but it's kind of, here's the menu, this is what you're going to get on the night. And, you know, sorry, we, we kind of don't, don't cater to someone saying, oh no, this occasion I don't like steak or, you know, fish. Well, I would imagine your, your markets there and people that are buying the tickets are are well aware of that and aren't your average pernickety in the restaurant yeah. annoying the chef type of person. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think everyone kind of understands that it's for an amazing, you know, amazing cause and they're they're used to kind of having different foods put in front of them in different venues and they want to see what we can do and create. Tell me about the one that's coming up now in March. So, like I said, it's the Marriage Equality Campaign, and it's going to be held in a bigger venue, D-Light Studios, um, which is over on the north side, and we're doing 100 people, six courses. There's going to be welcomed cocktails using Dingle Gin. Um, we're trying to throw in some Teeling's whiskey in there as well, so that would be exciting. There's going to be about three different bands playing. Um, it's, going to be, it's going to be a pretty big event, actually, and... You know, roughly 45% of the ticket sales go to the campaign. So, you know, that's pretty good standard. Um, and people really love that we're not putting profit in our back pocket. We're, we're really doing this for a cause and a, and a project. And the, the ticket price is how much? 65 euros. Okay. So and it's a really great deal, you know. And there's music or entertainment as well? Yep. Live music, three different live bands. Um, like I said, welcome cocktails and six courses. And what's the venue for that? It's a studio. Yeah, it's Delight Studios. So it's an old warehouse that's been converted into a photo photography and almost a documentary studio. So it's beautiful brick white walls and big windows. It's a really gorgeous space. And do you have to bring in all the furniture then and dress no. it up? Not all of it. Um, there's some stuff there for us, but generally it would be a case of, okay, see what we can combine together and bring it in and, and create an amazing space. Well, it sounds like an awful lot of work goes into it and you're, you and your pals are to be commended for doing it and, <laughs> and it's for charity. It's like a social enterprise, more or less. Yep, definitely. Uh, we kind of just decided there wasn't really anything like that happening. There were plenty of pop-up suppers and dinners, but it was all profit, you know, it was for the people who were doing it. 
And we just wanted to help these amazing causes that are happening all the time that maybe some people know about, maybe a lot of people know about, but they're worthwhile nonetheless. And um, so, yeah, so it's going to be fantastic. And we've got um, GCN magazine behind us, and we've got loads of support from people around the community so far. So we're trying to push ticket sales so that we can give them a, a good amount towards the campaign. Any plans to do something outside of Dublin? Absolutely. Yeah, we'd love to come to uh, different places in Ireland. So, you know, I'm totally welcome to ideas and things like that. Um, we're also looking to go to Amsterdam and London in the in the coming months. So it's really exciting. Very exciting indeed. And if people want to find out more or buy tickets, where is the best place to direct them? Um, probably my website. Um, that would be the best place. And there, there's a ticket link. Um, and also on Eventbrite, if you search um, food events in Dublin in March, um, mine should kind of come up, the Creators Long Table Supper for Marriage Equality, and you'll be able to buy tickets there. And your web address is jetverdi.com. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Jet, thanks for talking to me this evening. Thank you so much, Sharon. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Great to chat to Jet there. And if you make it to our long table supper on Friday the 20th of March, I'd love to hear how you get on. So that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thanks so much for your company and to all of tonight's guests. Sinead Neeland, Michelle Moon, Caroline Wilson, James McIntosh, George Sherlock and Jet Verde. Remember the podcast at soundcloud.com forward slash food and drink show if you missed any of the show tonight. Next week, Ron Forrestal is set to return with his wine slot. So until then, bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit.